Heidi, hey, Heidi, ho, folks, and a good rah rah to you. This is Carl Franklin, and you're listening to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I'm your host, Carl Franklin, as always, in New London, Connecticut, and my co-host, this time in Atlanta, Georgia, back home, in the state of red clay. Mark <laughs> Ain't Dunn. Ain't that the truth, my friend? It is the state of red clay. Yeah, I just heard that on the radio today. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. I just got back from Washington, D.C., uh, so I spent the week up there. Sorry had to hear that. some excellent crab cakes, though. You had some good crab cakes? Yeah, awesome crab cakes. Uh, yeah, that's true. Maryland, Washington, good crab cakes. Yeah, I went down to a restaurant called Seaside in Glen Burnie, Maryland. And, huh. Uh, you know, I was up there teaching a, a class for Anne Arundel Community College, uh, so really had a good week. Very cool. Yeah, we did some cool stuff. Uh, it wasn't my typical .NET class that I, I teach, you know, every other week or so. Uh, so I went up and taught a class for them on implementing uh, campus network solutions uh, using SQL 2000 and BizTalk 2002. Wow. So uh, we, we did some cool stuff. I had uh, one student had a Ph.D. in physics, so, you know, he and I clicked uh, right off the bat. Uh, but we wound up uh, using a DTS package to... Uh, uh, basically execute a query that pulled uh, four, using 4XML uh, some data from a table. Uh, DTS put that data into a message queue, and then we wrote a BizTalk receive function that, uh, that picked the data up and processed it uh, ultimately into a flat file format that he was looking for. Uh, so he, he got a lot out of the class. He, he left uh, ready to do some programming when he got home. Wow, that sounds like fun. Yeah, it was, man. I, you know, I love BizTalk. BizTalk is a great product. And you know, what's cool about BizTalk is you get to be creative with it. You know. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it it, it is ultimately Elmer's glue, right, for your applications. You can yeah. tie just about anything together with BizTalk. Well, um, you know, uh, just getting back to the clay thing, I was listening to some James Brown, and he said something like, you know, something about the red clay of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess that's, you know, that, that's what they eat down there when things get bad, huh? Yeah, that's right. Just fry <laughs> some up with a little butter and it's good. <laughs> I mean, there's Poe and then there's dirt eating Poe, you know? <laughs> anyway, uh, Mark, we got some great mail that uh, I really want to take a few minutes in and read some of this stuff. We, you know, we get letters and email all the time. But, uh, you know, they've been sticking out lately. And um, I just wanted to take a few minutes and, and, and uh, give a couple of shout-outs here. Yeah. Got some... Sorry? I said, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, this one's from uh, Rob Windsor, who says, uh, Hi, Carl and Mark. .NET rocks. Love the show. I was listening to the most recent No Guest show, where you mentioned an exercise you had in a class that asked the attendees to extract email addresses from a string. I was just working with the system.tax.regularexpressions namespace, mm -hmm. and I thought this would be freaking easy in .NET. took me about five minutes to come up with a method, see below, that given a string, it will give you an array of strings with extracted email addresses. I've attached a sample app that does the same from a doc RTF for text file. Thanks again for the show and for helping to get such valuable information out to the developer community. And he actually gave me the code. That's which awesome. Is, yeah, it's pretty cool. I haven't run it yet, but uh, so I don't know if it's going to be dog slow or not, but we'll see. No, it's probably not. And, you know, Rob brings up a great point. Uh, whenever you've got to do string manipulation, we were talking about using the old in-string function right. in basic, but regular expressions are, are the way to go, man. 
Do uh, they use the string builder stuff? Pardon? Do they use the string builder object? Do you know? I haven't seen this code, so I'm not sure what. No, no, what no, he no. Did no. Just regular expressions in general. A lot of string handling. Yeah, it's for string handling. I mean, you can basically, uh, you know, do do pattern matching with it. And I'm I'm certain that's what he did. He probably wrote a regular expression that. That's uh, exactly what he did. That that looked for the form of an email address. Uh, there's some really good resources out there too for that. Uh, O'Reilly wrote a book on on using regular expressions. Uh, not not O'Reilly. It was published by O'Reilly. Uh, Really an old book, but really a great book, Mastering Regular Expressions. And also Dan Appleman has an e-book uh, that really digs into uh, regular expressions as well. We also did an interview with uh, uh, Scott Hanselman, I think, who gave us just a boatload of regular expression uh, resources that are linked on the site. So if you're interested in that. Yeah, if you've never stuff. seen one, it looks like a cartoon character cursing. But, you know, it's very powerful. <laughs> Uh, here's another one that we got from Dan Lee, uh, who says that, uh, hey, Carl and Mark, I'm a big fan. I recently got my VB6 MSCD and need to now learn all things.net. As a former radio announcer and guitarist, I think, wow, this guy Carl's into the same stuff I'm into, only you've taken it a lot further, so I'm a little jealous. Anyway, I'd like to share my simple method of recording your show. I bought a $49 RCA digital voice recorder at Walmart. It's extremely light and compact and records up to six hours. I got a Radio Shack plug that goes from this thing to my sound card, and voila, I can quote-unquote tape the show and listen anywhere. I also use a text-to-speech program from www.readplease.com with this unit. I've listened to tons of stuff that would take me hours to read. I could go on with the kudos, but I'd sound like one of the crazed fans who used to call the radio station, so I'll leave it at that. Keep up the great work, Dan Lee. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a good one. And uh, one last one here. Uh, two, I'm sorry, two. We got another one here from uh, uh, Vince Blasberg, who says, I just got to let you know, I put the MP3s on two or three CDs and play them on my commute to and from work. It's a great day when car stereos play 15 MP3s on a CD. My family won't let me play them on our vacation drive tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it'd be like it'd be like that uh, that commercial with the aroma candles in the back oh, no. seat when everyone went to sleep. <laughs> Please turn it off. <laughs> they just don't know how much .NET rocks. To you and Mark, keep up the good work. All right. Well, this one, this next one here. Uh, it's really long, so I'm going to only pick out uh, a few of these. We, this is from a guy we gave a shout-out to a little bit a while ago from Nigeria, Ibrahim Mohammed, And uh, he goes on with a bunch of stuff, but I'll pick out the good parts. He says, I write to this email to tell you how much I did enjoy your last .NET Rocks episode. I have been praying the day you guys going to go solo. The reason for that was that I realized that you guys would have a lot of technical things to say, but because of time and the invited guests, you would not be allowed to. No offense, Brent. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the part about serialization and certification. I'm a big fan of certification because I believe that uh, that's the only way to have a chance of updating IT skills. I don't have any problems if Microsoft or any big IT companies continue to change the way we do things in IT world. When Microsoft released the blueprint of .NET development, people didn't know if Microsoft was saying the truth. Now, after three years with various releases of .NET products, everyone was caught by surprise. If today one is not ready to learn about .NET as a developer, then one is missing a lot. 
Uh, and then he goes on to say, I want you to know how how I feel about your contribution in evangelizing.net. I like .NET Rocks a lot and keep it up. You know, I used to be a big fan of Carl and Gary's VB homepage. I'm looking towards building such a website for upcoming developers to use and build themselves on .NET. CGVB has helped me a lot. Now .NET Rocks is also helping. I would continue to be a big fan of .NET and Microsoft technologies. Thank you for taking your time to read my mail. I will be writing in the future to tell you how I feel about .NET, Microsoft Technologies, and .NET Rocks. My regards to Mark Dunn, Todd, and the entire crew at Franklin's Net. It was a very touching email, and it went on and on with a lot of cool stuff. So thanks, Ibrahim. And uh, thanks to the listeners for uh, indulging us in a little bit of uh, a little bit of kudos there. Absolutely. We love encouraging emails. Yeah, keep them coming. Well, anyway, let me introduce tonight's guest, Mark. Uh, Brent Rector is president and founder of Wise Owl Consulting with over three decades' experience in software development. Brent has designed and implemented operating systems as well as new computer programming languages and their compilers. Brent started developing Windows applications using Windows 1 Beta in 1985 and has been involved in Windows development ever since. He is the author of numerous Windows programming books, including ATL Internals and Win32 Programming. Besides providing consulting and instruction for the premier .NET developer training organization, Wintelect, Brent's own company, Wise Owl Consulting, recently released Demeanor for .NET, the premier code obfuscator for .NET applications. For more information, go to www.wiseowl.com. Brent, hello and welcome to .NET Rocks. Well, thanks for having me here. Yeah, yeah, Brent, it's good to have you on. Uh, you're you're hardcore, man. Absolutely. Going back to Windows 1.0. You know, you wouldn't believe what we did with Windows 1.0. We uh, we used it to run a one and a half million dollar piece of hardware. <laughs> wow. And it did it very reliably. I, I might add on a 640k byte IBM AT. Wow. But you know that was then. I, I did now. run a I did run a program in Windows 1.0. That was when it was just like a runtime for DOS, right? Pretty much, you know, graphical user interface for it. We actually uh, we needed to get into protected mode, so I had to write a little protected mode OS, and it ran a real mode subroutine called Windows 1.0. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. <laughs> wow. But I guess some people call that hardcore. You know, I call it fun, personally. True, it was fun. Well, I, you know, I wasn't... You're, you're talking to a visual basic programmer at heart here, so... Uh... Yeah, me Anytime too. Anytime you do something that low level, that's hardcore to me. So I, I'm, I'm turn this around a little bit. Since you're a VB programmer, and I have to ask, with you know .NET and VB.NET, how do you feel about VB.NET? Well, um, Mark, why don't you answer first, and then I've got a big, long-winded answer that I'd like okay. to give. Well, I I love VB.NET. Uh, for a while, I did some Delphi programming and uh, was a Delphi instructor for a short run. And uh, came to appreciate object-oriented development when I was doing that. And I, I was looking forward to the day that uh, I'd really be able to do inheritance with Visual Basic. So uh, I, I'm very excited about VB.net. Uh, I, I like C-sharp, but as everybody knows that listens to the show, uh, a case-sensitive language and me just don't get along. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just not used to it. Yeah. Well, uh, my answer is that uh, I, I love VB. I, th- I think in Visual Basic. And when I'm looking to uh, 
write code in, in applications and algorithms, I naturally just think in that language. I've, I've programmed in other languages. I've programmed in C++, programmed in Assembler, programmed in Pascal for a brief stint, Turbo Pascal. Um, and I've even programmed quite a bit in C Sharp. And I just like VB the best. And a lot of it has to do with productivity. I just feel that uh, I can write cleaner, better, easier to read, easier to understand code faster in VBNet than I can in any other language. So... That's how I feel about VBNet. Right. And let me ask you, Brett, uh, as far as choosing a language, do you really think it matters that much uh, which language you implement your solution in and uh, .NET? Well, I think by, in large, in general, I would say, you know, yes, because you want to use the best language for the job. Uh, with .NET, since you're talking to now a common runtime library, basically the framework, so... You have a one set of APIs to use regardless of your programming language, then I don't really think it makes so much of a difference given the choices we have today. If you were going to write a some sort of batch processing report generating program, I think Cobalt on that probably would be the best choice. <laughs> oh, that's funny. If I were doing some sort of you know scientific you know uh, scientific computing atomic bomb calculations, probably Fortran.net. But for what we do most day in and day out on uh, PC and on Windows, I don't really think it matters that much whether you use VB or C Sharp. In fact, small set of things that it does better than the other one, late binding for VB, and um, you can use pointers and hurt yourself badly in C Sharp if you want to. Um, but you know, for 80, 90 percent of what most people write day in and day out, there's no real difference. I don't even think in productivity or, or expressivity. Um, in the two languages. Probably the productivity issue is for me being a VB programmer and expecting a certain level of, you know, IntelliSense and speed and non-case sensitivity and things like that, having to go, you know, add that level of detail to my thought processes is not something that I'd like to do. So. Are you aware of any optimizations that, uh, you know, the, the compilers uh, take advantage of that are different between C Sharp and VB.net? I'm not aware of any specific ones. The C-sharp compiler is more mature in the sense that it's a year or two older probably than the VB.NET compiler, uh, just because Microsoft started, you know, and developed the C-sharp compiler sooner. And the majority of the framework itself is written in C-sharp. So I'm sure there's been a lot more work just in man years put into the C-sharp compiler. But there's a, a really interesting argument that says that it's counterproductive to put effort into optimizing any .NET compiler. Yeah, because I agree. With the just-in-time compiler, you want to put all your optimization effort into the JIT process, and then all languages benefit from that. Absolutely. Yeah. Part of Visual Studio itself is written in .NET in managed code as well. So. Yeah, most of it. Well, uh, Brent, you sent me an email, a few talking points here that you wanted to make, and I have to, my eyes immediately went to the last one. <laughs> Jennifer Aniston. Okay, I'm, I'm interested. Well, unfortunately, I don't have much to talk about her. <laughs> we like her. <laughs> I keep missing her phone calls every time she calls, but <laughs> she 
doesn't call, but I'd hate to believe that, you know. That'd just be depressing. <laughs> I actually have just only found out about her in the last couple of years since I got my replay TV. I, I never was a, a friend fan for years, so uh-huh. I'm not catching them for the first time in the last couple of years. Aha. Uh-huh. Are they about to uh, to end the run of Friends? Uh, seems like I heard that somewhere. Yeah, this is the upcoming season, I think, is the last one, or... And she's out making movies now, I think. That's right, but you know, I'm sure she'll hear this uh, this discussion and want to give one of us a call. She'll give you a call, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure she's a diehard listener of .NET Rocks. I would think so. Yeah, why not? I mean, who wouldn't want to listen to this great show? <laughs> Mainly put that on the list last to see how far you read. You know. <laughs> Speaking of uh, people who listen to the show, we recently submitted a proposal to XM Radio. How cool would that be if we got on XM? Radio. Yeah. So anyway, I have a satellite radio. I haven't heard back from the XM people, so if if you're listening out there, go find an email address. Maybe we'll put a link on the site, and just uh, you know, bomb them with email requesting that they put .NET Rocks on the satellite radio. So I don't have a satellite radio either, but if they put our show on, I'm gonna get one. I know a lot of people who would get one if they put the show on. That'd be cool. Yeah. Maybe you can download code over the radio. Oh, very <laughs> cool. Oh. <laughs> oh, now you got me thinking, Brent. Uh oh. Good. Wait a minute. I set now up a little. Driving now, though. I set up a little socket service. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. No, okay. Hey, Carl here with a couple of quick announcements. We have some changes afoot. Lots of big changes afoot at .NET Rocks and Franklin's Net. We're working on lots of cool stuff. First of all, we're going to clean up this website a little bit. Uh, going to uh, make it so that you can you don't have to see all of the past shows on the first page and you can search for the past shows. Also we're standardizing the audio formats. We're working on that to bring you uh, a concise constant sound and a series a selection of audio formats for you to listen to for all the shows. Also we are moving to a bi-weekly .NET Rock show. That's right. And that means that you're going to have plenty of time now to catch up on your favorite .NET Rocks episodes that you haven't had the time to do as of yet. So every other week we're going to have a show. Also, I want to mention a couple things that are happening with Franklin's Net classes. We do uh, hands-on training for really for intermediate-level developers who are looking to go to .NET. Uh, we do a VB.NET masterclass. I teach it in New London. Mark Dunn teaches it in Atlanta. We have regular classes scheduled. And also Mark Dunn and Marcy Robillard, the data grid girl. That's right. And her talk is coming up here uh, in the next show. Uh, Well, they are teaching a new ASP.NET masterclass. And this is a more web-focused class. In fact, it's all web-focused, whereas the VBNet masterclass is a little bit more Windows Forms-focused. So check it out at www.franklins.net. Hey, this is this is an incredible. I just spent uh, an hour re-listening to the show, and again I picked up some stuff from Brent that uh, that I didn't remember before. This is a great one, folks. Stick around, won't you? Well, um, one of your, one of your talking points I'm very interested in, and, and it's a topic that we haven't talked about at all on .NET Rocks, and I'm therefore 
actually, I'm actually very interested in it. Actually, we may have talked a bit about it with Jonathan Zuck, but it's intellectual property. And um, I know that you're big into code obfuscation. You wrote an obfuscator, right? And people are people are concerned about uh, about that. They have been concerned with Java as well. I mean, Java has the same transparency in terms of looking at decompiled bytecode. Right. Um, so, do you think this is really an issue? I mean, do you, don't people most of the time want to protect their data rather than their algorithms? Well. People are really funny about their code. You know, I, I have people come up to me all the time uh, worried about the problem. Whether they're worried rightly or not is a, a valid question, I think. And to some degree, I, I talk to probably hundreds if not thousands of developers a year, and I see a lot of the code that's out there. And I think it's already obfuscated in the original source form. So by and yeah. large, I don't think there's a lot of threat <laughs> to to most people there. <laughs> You know, you still have the people <laughs> that are that are concerned. So self-obfuscating code writing. That's right. You know, you know. So I had one company, and this is they they swore this was a true statement. Uh, you know, it's one of these stories that you can't, you don't want to believe because you would cry if you <laughs> if you thought it was really true. But one company, some they can't claimed. Um, seriously, that a manager no longer with the company had come in over the weekend and decided to speed up their code by deleting all the comments. Oh man! <laughs> and had actually done it, you know. So, uh, Ooh. and they were serious, you know. I'm going, whoa, you know. So <laughs> Ever heard of a compiler? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It does that for you, you know. So. Well, that's pretty scary. About .NET Code, I said, well, it's true that. What goes in your binary is everything that's in your source code, with the exception of your comments, if you have them, and the uh, names of your local variables. Yeah. Everything else is in the binary, and there are a lot of tools that you can go out on the Internet for free to a lot of different websites and run decompilers. In fact, you can take VB code and translate it to C Sharp or C Sharp to VB or whatever. I remember, in the, I remember in the old days of uh, VB4, some guys had written a VB4 decompiler. Or it was a VB3, I think. Was it VB3? Yeah, they... Yeah, P-Code. Before or it was the... P-Code, that's what they called the v- VB4 was the last P-Code uh, VB. Anyway, the, the compiler came along with version 5 and then version 6 in v- Visual Basic, and and after that it didn't work. But I remember, yeah, maybe maybe VB3, but definitely VB4. I remember, I remember that. And um, a lot of people were really concerned really really concerned but uh i don't know i and this is the issue i brought up again is this really an issue because have there ever been cases let me ask you this have there ever been cases where somebody has written some code and put it out there either in the public domain or sold commercial software and somebody else has said yeah i think i'll do that decompile it change some colors and slap their own name on it and actually try to get away i mean that seems to be a really ballsy move to me well you know within the us i think it would be difficult because of all the legal uh, repercussions, but of course now we have the net and everything's international. Uh, you might be in a position where you can't really preclude that. I really think the advantage to, to obfuscation or any technique that slows people down from stealing your code is more for your competitors and just to slow them down. Uh, I know some people that have worked a long time reverse engineering a piece of code. When I go 
you know, if you just sat down with a blank sheet of paper, you could have probably invented something that did the same functionality in half the time. Right. So it's it's somewhat mistaken, I think. But then by the same token, one of the customers that I, I went to and did some consulting for, they said they had an Internet product, and it was some sort of some sort of game system or something that required you to log into their servers. And they said within seven days after they released the .NET code, somebody had hacked it and taken out the, the login authentication part. Wow. Now, part of that was probably a poor design in the first place. But um, So there are certainly some people out there doing it. But, you know, I, I look at something like Office. If Microsoft released the source code to Office, now, I've never seen it. I don't really know how big it is, but my guess would be it's in the hundreds of thousands of lines, maybe a million lines of code. That's pretty much self-obfuscated, even with comments. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who's going to figure that out? Right. You know, you just don't have the motivation to do it. And like you say, the only thing you could do is, like, steal it in Moss and and modify a tiny little thing to put your name on the top instead of office and you're going to get caught pretty soon doing that. So I guess what you're what I hear you saying is that it's more like uh algorithms that, you know, that do a particular thing that your competitors are trying to do uh and you've done it and you figured it out and you want to slow down your competitors from picking up that particular yeah, it's really just a slow-down thing. Uh, nothing you can do, and this includes shipping 8086 binary. Um, if you ship your code to an end user, you know, they can install it on their computer, then you have no secrecy if the end user wants badly enough to steal it. I know one day, just sort of for fun, well, I was a... A company pissed me off. <laughs> and okay. It was a firewall, yeah. a piece, a product that I had bought and I was using, and it just didn't do something right. And I complained, and they basically said, we're not going to fix it. So I thought, okay, I can fix this. So it was about a week of effort. This was a kernel device driver, uh, a network device driver. And in a week of effort, I decompiled it by hand back into C, the C program, C source code, changed it to do what I wanted, and installed the new version and was running it, which I felt perfectly satisfied of doing since I own that copy. And so this is x86 native code, kernel device drivers even, and it took me a whole week to do. Right. So not everybody would do that probably, but still, the idea that just because you shipped it con compiled code as opposed to .NET IL or bytecode, doesn't really, I think it gives you more of an illusion of security than any real security. Right. .NET makes it easier, but it's just easier. It's a matter of degree. Hmm. Now, one thing that people miss about, for example, code obfuscation is it shrinks the size of your programs by, oh, I'd say an average of 15 to 20%. So, for example, I have a, a code obfuscator product that we market and I ran it on Microsoft System.Windows.Forms DLL just as a as a test case, really. And it's a two megabyte assembly, and it drops by 200k bytes in size. Wow! So the reason is you have all the original programmer symbols in your file, and if you're a good programmer, you use long, meaningful symbols. Right. And so all those long, meaningful symbols make it into your file. But at runtime, the runtime doesn't care whether the symbol's a long, meaningful name or the letter A. 
And so uh, what a lot of the products do is they take out your long, meaningful names and put in short, meaningless names. Right. For a pocket PC or a compact framework device, this provides a, a significant memory saving. Right. I was going to say, you, you probably derive some performance benefit from that just because you've got a lower memory footprint, faster load time for the assembly. That's right. So you get a smaller working set, you're hitting fewer pages, so you're thrashing the disk less. You know, you have smaller image on disk. So there are a number of benefits. I'm not sure that on regular desktop devices it adds up to a heck of a lot anymore. I don't know. Right. I come from the days where, you know, 100K bytes was a lot of memory. This is what I call this is what I call '90s thinking, Brent. Yeah, <laughs> we really have to unlearn it. You know, it's uh, no longer are we worried about milliseconds and nanoseconds. And well, I, I do have an Itanium two here with two gigabytes of RAM. So, <laughs> 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 so I, I'm not thinking that way. Some way, in some ways, but it's like, but that Itanium two could use that 10k bytes. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, you know programming mobile devices. That kind of swings us back around to having to worry about not having the luxury of all these resources on a desktop uh, machine. So uh, you know, I think programmers that are, are especially doing mobile solutions that they are going to worry about things like that. Good point. And that's you know totally independent of the obfuscation aspect of it. But then, for coming back to the intellectual property again, any of the tools, the commercial tools to do obfuscation, cost in the order of uh, a thousand bucks, maybe a little bit more. And if you've just spent a million dollars to develop your software product, and a thousand dollar extra investment can slow down your competitors by six months, seems cheap. Well, that's assuming you spent a million dollars to develop your software. <laughs> well, the one guy shops. If they've spent a million dollars, they were they should have been doing something else with that million. They should call me. That's what they yeah. should do. <laughs> hey, after they call me. That's right. Uh, one thing about obfuscators that I've noticed is that they do things differently, and you know, there's like a community level obfuscator that does some simple symbol replacement. And you know, code pointer scrambling, and there's other things that do more strong uh, kind of encryption and other more heinous techniques. Right. The, now, some of that stuff can maybe slow things down. No, it, it can. Um, for example, the uh, the freebie obfuscator that comes with Visual Studio, it basically just renames things, and right. that's all it does. Um, they're, they're, that company's commercial version and my commercial version and some others, for example, we have an option called string encryption. Uh, all of the major ver companies do. And what it does is it, it goes in and takes your string literals and encrypts them so that if somebody brings up the IL disassembler or, or runs a tool on it, you can't just search and say, oh, here's where it puts out the invalid password, try again message. Because that's a big clue on where you should probably look first if you're trying to decompile something. But then again, where, how does that co, how do those strings get re-decrypted uh, on the fly at runtime? Yep, that's and that's the whole problem. Any piece of software where it decrypts something, it means that the decryption key is built into the program somewhere. And, and it's so there it's for the finding. it's just a matter of time until somebody can find it. Yeah. And now they have all the strings decrypted. Yep. 
right. so again, it's just one addition, additional hurdle that somebody reverse engineering your product has to go through. And is it valuable or not? Well, you know, it only takes a microsecond or so to decrypt a string literal uh, the way we do it, for example. And you don't notice any. Theoretically, there's a performance impact, but in any realistic right. program I've measured, you know, you can't measure it. If you're and doing a heavy string programming in a loop, you may see a, a performance. You might, yeah. Hit. And uh, there are ways to code around that because it only affects your string literals, not your string variables. Oh, I see. Oh, good. So, of you know, course. basically most of yeah. your processing isn't affected by it at all. Right, and that would just have to decrypt once anyway when it that's loads right. in memory. That's so. right. Yeah, that's so pretty cool. It, it, but the decryption key is there. It has to be there. Um, and then there are other techniques that people use for intellectual property. For example, it's somewhat ironic that a trivial modification of any .NET program can crash most disassembly tools, including Microsoft's IL disassembly. Hmm. Wow. So a lot of companies have options where, oh, you know, want me to generate an assembly that crashes IL DASM? Oh, that's nice, interesting. The, it's sort of a good thing, bad thing. Right. It's easy to do, but if you ask .NET, is this a valid assembly, it'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. They get away with it because by default, assemblies that load from your local hard drive don't have to get verified. Uh, Brent, would I gain any uh, benefit from running uh, the engine utility and making something uh, a native EXE? Good question. Yeah, that's actually really counterintuitive. People always think, well, if I run the engine utility on my assembly, it generates a pure 8086 assembly. Yeah, that's But now you true. have two DLLs to load where before you only had one. And you can't get rid of the original one. The native code version has the, the jitted 8086 executable code, but .NET programs will not run without the original metadata. Right, and also it doesn't. Uh, it also has to still go through the security checks and all the other things before it will run the native code. It just doesn't compile it. Is that right? It uh, well, it compiles it, and if you put the engine assembly in something like the GAC, all the security checks are done when the assembly is inserted into the global assembly cache. Right. So they don't okay. have to be done every time it's run from the GAC. But with code with code access security, I thought the uh, security checks have to do with who's running the code at the time it's being run. No. Actually, the security checks from CAS code access security are mostly uh, where does the what is the code and where did it come from, not who is running it, uh, because that's the Win32 security model. So, yeah, those things, security checks on, like, can you call this function, um, can you access that resource, those still go on whether you're in-gend or not. Well, we're going to have to talk about that a little more, because I, I was under the impression that the code access security uh, had to ha looked at the role that the user was in. Maybe it's role-based security. I think I may, may get my terms mixed up. But part of the security model in .NET We'll actually walk the stack up looking at the credentials of the caller who called the function, and then based on the local policy, we'll give you a yes or no depending on where that, uh, you know, where the code came from and other things. Well, it's slightly off a little bit. It's, it does, the code access security basically, um, we divide security domains up into the assemblies. Every assembly can have a different set of security permissions granted to it. So when .NET loads a DLL or an EXE, 
it basically comes up with, with a bunch of evidence about that assembly. It came from this URL, yes. or it came from the C drive. It has this strong name. It has this uh, VeriSign certificate attached. Uh, anyway, it comes with all these facts, and then it goes to the security policy on your system and says, based upon these facts, which are called security evidence, what permissions does security policy give this particular DLL? And it comes up with a set of what's called the permission grant set. Okay, and that has nothing to do with the security context of the caller. Of the user, not of the, the user that's running the process. That's what I mean. The user. So, yeah. So now if you have two DLLs, A and B, both run, you know, like one call, a function in A calls into B, you have a set of security permissions that code in A is allowed to do. You could theoretically have different security permissions that code in B is allowed to do. Yeah. And so let's say that A is a, uh, a malicious Trojan horse program, you know, a worm or a virus or something, and it's enticed, um, called the luring attack, it's enticed B into doing its evil deed for it because B is a trusted piece of code. So A calls This is like B Star Wars, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens basically is when you call into .NET, into the runtime, and you ask it to do something that is a secured operation like opening a file or reading a registry key or even just reading an environment variable, .NET will actually say, hmm, I wonder if you have permission to open this file. And so .NET will look up the call stack and say, which assembly called me asking me to open the file? And it'll say, oh, B called. B's trusted. We don't mind that. Okay. Who called B? And then it walks up the stack again and says, A, I don't trust A at all. A didn't have permissions to ask for files to I get be it. opened. And it blows the request away. And that's different from role-based security, which is basically your code checking the role. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Oh, it matters what zone the code is running from, too, right? Yeah. Well, that's one of the pieces of evidence on where the code loaded. It's unfortunate today, I think, that... The security policy for .NET is such that if the code comes from what's called the local computer zone, which by default means if it came off your hard drive, if you installed it, it gets permissions to do anything it wants to. Yeah, I, I agree. That's not very good. <laughs> now, future versions, I'm sure, will change this. You know, it doesn't make sense to leave it this way. All you have to do is download a zip, you know, or a setup exe and run it locally, and you've got full permission. That's right. So It'll even be though turned to the dark side before you know it. <laughs> so even though you know the user uh, allowed it to run, the user doesn't know what code is written in there. And we're back to the old problem of: Do you want to open this attachment? Hey, it may completely ruin your computer. Yes or no? That's right. Now uh, I could, you can change this. I, since I'm a, a developer and I run lots of code from lots of people, sometimes. I have a whole section of my hard drive where I've altered the default security policy. And when I put .NET applications there, uh, it's actually C colon backslash sandbox. Anything from there or down, it. I've configured, you don't get any permissions to do anything. That's cool. And then if, I'm, if I don't trust some code, I'll put it there, I'll run it from there, I'll see why it blows up, you know, what was it trying to do. That's very cool. 
That'd be a great magazine article to write, Brent, how to configure a sandbox on your local machine. It still requires some uh, a knowledgeable user at the keyboard to, to actually put that zip file down into that directory, though. So. Well, Brent, i got to tell you, that's probably the, the best concise explanation of code access security I may have ever heard from anybody. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Thank and you. Most people don't don't quite grasp it. I know it took me a long time to get my head around it because it's quite different from, say, the Windows security model, where it's who are you? If you're an admin, you can do everything. If you're guest, right. you can. You know? And you can do that yourself in your code just by looking at the role that the caller, the calling uh, context is in. Sure, sure. And .NET security works on top of Windows security too. So even if .NET security gives you the right to to overwrite this file if you've got a Windows access control on it so that you can't, you know, then it won't be overwritten anyway. So they actually are complementary in many ways. I'm taking a look at some of the cool stuff this month online at the MSDN magazine site. That's uh, msdn.microsoft.com slash msdnmag. And I'm in particular looking at the Advanced Basics column, which uh, Ken Spencer writes every month. And these are some advanced uh, vb.net uh, topics. And what he's doing this month is creating a Windows Form application that creates graphical text on the fly. This is a really useful thing to do, you know, especially for websites. Um, this is a trick that I've learned with ASP.NET websites. When you create a, a JPEG file that has your email address in it, instead of typing out your email address in raw text, you make a little JPEG of it on the fly, and then those robot programs can't sniff the email addresses off your pages uh, very easily anyway, without using optical character recognition. Anyway, that's just one of many advanced basic columns that's up there. It's the current one. You can, of course, search all the archives for other things that Ken has showed you how to do. Let's now get back to uh, Brent Rector on .NET Rocks. Uh, I don't know. Are you excited? I'm excited. Well, the, um, uh, the next talking point that really jumps out at me uh, is remoting. And uh, we've talked with a few people about remoting. We uh, have talked with, well, let's see, Rocky Latka. Wahoo, well, Mark? Ingo Rammer. Ingo Rammer, yep, in detail. Rocky Latka. Right. Uh, Javal Lowy talked a bit about remoting. We even had the um, uh, one of our uh, success stories, Troy Gerton, uh, talk about a remoting application that he wrote and deployed. And works very well. So, what do you got to say about it? Well, the the thing I would tell everybody about remoting right now is that it's not a replacement for current technologies. Really, people all they all come up to me and say, "Okay, instead of DCOM, I can use .NET Remoting, or instead of Web Services, you know, I can use Remoting, or, or should I use Remoting?" And, um, the trouble is, my analogies all go back, you know, a decade or two, so nobody ever understands them. But, uh, <laughs> remoting is like RPC. Yeah, you lost me. Yeah, there you go. See? <laughs> no, I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm out of luck. Um, remoting today in .NET is great, and it's it's relatively efficient, and it's extremely 
extremely easy to get up and running, but it's just not missing a huge amount of useful features. For example, authentication. There's uh, no yes. authentication on the remoting channel in .NET today. So you have to write it yourself. You would have to write it yourself, and that is a non-trivial thing to do. You will uh -huh. get it wrong. Have you seen anybody with tools for remoting authentication? No, no. Word is that you know something better will be coming down in the future, but I don't know what that is yet. I've not seen it. Um, right now, remoting is a good way to take a method call from a client machine and run the method on an object on a server machine in a trusted environment. So, if you're in a server farm or and you're doing the back end, you know your web server wants to communicate to your database server or something like that. Remoting is really good and no problems as long as you're behind that firewall. But there's no kind of authentication, so there's no way for a remoting server to know who's calling it with a request. And right. there's no encryption short of saying running over uh, SSL. Or doing your own. So there's all of those issues. that, And there's nothing like... Uh, transactions, if you're doing complus or database type stuff where you want to, it's a horrible idea, I hate to even say this, but if you want to initiate a transaction on a client system and propagate it to a back-end system, more mm. reasonably would be to take it off the web server and propagate it to the database server. But any of that transaction flow semantics, none of that's supported by remoting. Well, now Ingo uh, Rammer has uh, in his book Advanced Remoting in VB.net, a couple of sections on doing your own custom syncs. Yes, right. And uh, he has a sync that does encryption and a sync that does uh, compression. Right. And just puts them in line and uh, forget about them. The remoting architecture in .NET is extremely elegant. You know, I'm in awe of the design. It's unfortunate that it's now been undocumented by Microsoft. Yeah, and it's apparently going away. Uh, no, what? They're uh, you know going away in the sense that they'll probably have something better. Uh, okay. .NET remoting was documented. The architecture was initially documented, and that's how people learned about the things. And uh, yeah, I think it's pretty um, rudimentary. In other words, uh, early, and not all not very polished. Well, there's a lot of switch. People are switching, and the industry as a whole are switching to standard-based uh, things. So there are all these efforts, and they're not even completed yet, like WS security and WS transaction, right. web services security and transaction, and probably some future remoting architecture will need to support those standards because that'll be interoperable with other platforms, not just Windows as well. Well, they already are, um, SOAP and HTTP. So you can basically do web services over remoting. You can, but there's a big difference between web services and remoting. Um, web services deal with a very, relatively speaking, primitive type system. It right. deals in data types that you can send back and forth in XML. And right. remoting deals with .NET data types. So you can literally pass a parameter on a remoting method call that's a .NET hash table called instance. But you couldn't do that on a on a web services. Well, I've done web services where I've used a binary formatter to serialize an object into a byte array and just return the byte array. Sure, you can do that. Yeah, it's a little extra work, and it does what remoting does internally. You're doing now externally, but of course, now 
now you're also assuming uh, that you have .NET on both ends. That's right, and then yeah. which begs the question: Why are you using web services? Yeah, there, I wasn't going to ask that. That's going to be more polite. <laughs> I am the guest here. So. <laughs> well, you know, it's been an issue. We've, you know, Microsoft is now getting a, getting in gear to rebrand the word .NET to things that just have to deal with web services and web services, web services, web services. And by the way, did we mention web services? Yeah, right. I, and, I hate that. Well, I, I, uh, I get, Microsoft has vision. Let's, let's give them credit for vision. Now, maybe we just don't see it because the current version of web services is, eh, you know, it's good. It's getting there. But, you know, if this is where they're going to be pouring their research and development and, Making them faster, making them more secure, making them this, making them that. Who knows? Maybe someday, you know, uh, usage-wise and usefulness-wise, they'll outdo remoting. Well, possibly. They have a long way to go. Um, That's remoting true. Remoting basically is based on HTTP and XML. And if you use TCP in the binary formatter for remoting, it's about oh, six to eight times faster. Yeah, I've seen three, three to four, yeah, depending, see, unless you're using data sets. <laughs> well, data sets, then it's about the same. About the same. Probably a little slower, actually. Yeah, since data sets are all XML anyway, regardless of what you do. And the funny thing is, isn't data sets supposedly the center of the universe data-wise in .NET land? So Supposedly. I, I should probably yeah. learn those things one of these days. I keep hearing that. It's uh, We're sort of chasing our tail a bit. I have never so, used a data set. Data sets are cool. It's a record set on steroids. That's what I hear, and, and it's a whole programming model in its own right from what I read. But That's true, yeah. Well, you know, the most common question I get from students whenever we talk about remoting or web services is, you know, should I consider remoting uh, over web services to, to optimize the speed at which things happen? And I, I think from what I'm, I'm hearing you say, uh, you know, you may give up uh, being able to authenticate, uh, but I'm not so sure that that web services often offer us authentication anyway, above what above what you would get with remoting. Uh, so it may be a good argument to uh, to look into remoting if speed is a big concern. Well, remoting, as I said, is a great way to take a method call. You know, you call some object on a client and take the parameters, forward them to the uh, representation of that object on the server and execute over there and get the answer back. That's all it does. And as long as that's what you want to do, you don't care about hiding the data as it goes back and forth or any of the security aspects. Remoting is so easy to do. When I when I give a remoting talk, I have my... Uh, this is the hard way to do it. That's five lines of code. I spend like 40 minutes talking about what those five lines of code right. do. Yeah. And then you turn around and say, and the easy way is load this config file and you're done. Yeah, that's basically what I do. Yeah. 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 So, And then you feel bad at the end of the day. Okay, an hour and a half and I just talked about six lines of code. <laughs> well, what they didn't know is that it took you like 10 days to figure out the, the capitalization of the config file entries. <laughs> I hate those config God files. damn it, they yeah. suck. <laughs> the errors are like, you screwed up, and I'm not going to tell you why. Yeah, that's right. The error is like uh, incompatible version. What? Right. I only <laughs> I have one version, and it's not even running yet. So. I didn't capitalize an L, you know, and I get an incompatible version error. I hate those. I have my, my remoting test case that works, and I start from that. You got it. Wanna... Yeah. 
That's what the remoting toolkit is all about. That's on our website at www.franklinsnet.net. That's uh, just a little config file snippet and some code for the client using HTTP, IIS, binary formatter. Works. Right. Once you, you start with a working one and you're, you're home free. Yeah. It took me so long to get one working, though. It was infuriating. <laughs> Brent, we haven't asked you uh, where you're from and uh, you know what kind of things you're doing with your company, Wise Owl Consulting. Well, I'm located down in San Diego, so mostly across the country from you guys. Lucky bastard. Weather's not too bad here ever. So. Not too bad. It's awesome. Probably the best weather in the country. Well, I, I grew up in Indiana, and the company I worked for back in 1978 sent me to California for training for three weeks in January once. He didn't come back. I never did come back, actually. <laughs> I Screw asked that. the company that I trained at, you know, do you guys have any openings? <laughs> <laughs> and literally, my car, I went home, drove my car here, and the car hasn't left the state since. So Jeez. I do all the time, unfortunately, on airplanes. What does Wise Owl Computing do? Well, mostly I do uh, training and consulting. So... Uh, there are a lot of big companies around here, HP, and HP is getting real big into .NET development, and so I go in there occasionally, help them out, or, or they help me out, depending on how you look at it. And we, I do a training all around the world. So mostly, Wiseal's just me. I'm a one-guy place. And between that, we're getting into the software product business with our code obfuscator, which is doing real well. I can sort of keep track of what the .NET market is like and how many people are developing for it based upon how well that's doing. So how much is it and what makes it better than everyone else's? Well, the commercial version is $1,450. <laughs> that's the sound of angina from Carl. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, i got to make a return on my investment. That's true. So uh, it it. it it actually makes your code so that it doesn't decompile back into compilable C-sharp. You, once oh, that's good. Once you've obfuscated it, uh, while there's nothing that will keep you from, saying running ILDASM and getting an IL source file on it, uh, you will not be able to get compilable C-sharp back out of it. Mostly because, I don't know how many people realize this, but .NET itself, we're talking the runtime here, can do a heck of a lot more than even the C-sharp language permits. It, it turns out that C-sharp probably allows you to do only about 70% of the things that you can actually do at the, if you're writing IL code yourself. See that, Mark? I told you C-sharp wasn't always cracked up to be. Yeah. Right, right. You know, real programmers <laughs> write IL. Come That's on now. right. Now they use Notepad. <laughs> hey, I like Visual Notepad. <laughs> yeah, well, made me a lot of money in the 90s. So one of the things that my obfuscator does is deliberately take your binary, because it, it doesn't really care what language you're in. I'm all working at the IL level, and alters it so that you get the same effect, but I use as many constructs as possible that are present in .NET that C Sharp and VB don't support. Um, for example, it's possible at the .NET level to have a field in your class called A. Okay, great. But it turns out at the .NET level, you can have a double called A, an integer called A, a float called A, 
a string called A, uh, int32 unsigned called A. And, wow. And you can have upper and lower case too, but we won't go there because we Jeez. know your opinion on that. Jeez. <laughs> That's all right. Well, well if you, C-sharp doesn't allow you to overload fields based upon their data type, but .NET does. Wow. DB doesn't either. So when you decompile your program, you have all these fields all called A, and the C-sharp compiler goes, which A were you talking about? You have 17 of them now. You have a little bit of a collision problem there. A little bit. And, and then there's things that people don't really realize. .NET doesn't know about properties and events and enumerations. They don't really exist in, in some senses. They're all smoke and mirrors uh, that the compilers use. Huh. .NET knows about properties, or sorry, fields and methods. End of story. Right. And that's what the uh, handlers, the event handlers, the subscription idea is all about, right? All Subscribing those, the event events. keyword and all the property keywords, all they do is spit out properties, or fields and methods. Cool. Under the covers. So since, now, if you're going to compile against an assembly, you like to have these high-level things like events and properties. But if all you're doing is running the binary... You don't need them anymore. So one of the things my tool does is it goes in and strips them out of your program. Wow, that's cool. So you end up getting a program that's as close to the assembly language level as possible when you get done. doesn't mean people can't reverse engineer it, like I said before, but it does make it a lot harder. What other uh, methods of, say, you know, obfuscation do you use other than... We know that you use renaming. We know that, do you do code pointer scrambling, like go, put go-tos in there? We don't actually do that. Um, I've, I have the capability in there. Actually, I've never enabled it in my commercial product because I don't really believe in it. It's yeah. called control flow obfuscation. Right. Um, it, it turns out that the better software developer you are, the less it helps you. It okay. turns out you cannot do it across say, exception handling boundaries. So if you have a try mm. block, you can do it within the try block, but not across the try-catch boundary. Okay, that well, that, that right. kind of makes sense. If you have small modular methods with, you know, six assignments in a row, how the heck do you scramble that kind of control flow? There is none. And you say you, your, your tool does encryption, string encryption. It does string encryption. It does metadata obfuscation. Um, it basically will play with your properties and methods. It'll either obfuscate them or just totally remove them so they no longer exist in your, your file. And generally, um, performance is faster, right? Pretty much. Uh, it's The size is about 20% smaller, which should give you a small performance increase. And generally speaking, otherwise, performance is identical to the pre-obfuscated version. Wow, this is a good deal. Now, the other thing that we do that most of them don't is what we call entire application obfuscation. A lot of the tools just look at one DLL and obfuscate it. Well, you can't change any of the entry points into the DLL, any of the public classes or the public methods, because you have EXEs linking to those names. But if you point our product demeanor at a whole set of assemblies, we'll actually obfuscate everything. And then if we said, oh, we changed calculate interest rate to Q, we'll track down every place that's, that references it and changes the reference to Q as well. So we huh. throw away all symbols. Wow. Well, I'd say that'll separate you from the field. Uh, I, I would think that would be necessary. And uh, it, you basically end up getting better... Um, 
you know, better obfuscation because we look at the whole ball of wax. In fact, we have to, we basically pretend to be the .NET runtime, load every assembly, including MS CoreLib and system Windows forms and anything you use, analyze the whole thing, and then spit out your new assemblies. That was a massive pain to do. Wow. Well, it sounds like a great tool. Sounds like it's worth uh, 1400 Yeah, I would say so. Well, Borland's now shipping a, a cut-down version of it with their new C-Sharp Builder product as well. So uh, Borland actually thought quite highly of it. In fact, they're using the tool uh, internally as well. Uh, Brent, you writing any books for .NET? I am writing a, a .NET book. It's uh, basically on an upcoming operating system of Microsoft. So Longhorn, I, we've, we've talked about Longhorn. You know, people know it exists. So that book will come out when Longhorn comes out. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath, though. Good, good, good. But that's the only one going on right now. So. Well, our our time is almost up. Do you have any last-minute words of wisdom to uh, impart on the listening audience? Um, Jennifer, if you're listening, give me a call. <laughs> Other than that, no, no. I'm, I think .NET is the happening place to be, and, and I'm really glad I'm in this. Mark, you still alive? Yeah, I'm uh, having a, a bit of a coughing attack. Oh, I see. I'll, I'll recover. Get eating some of that red dirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I told you not to do that. They kick it up and it's a little garlic. All right, you guys. <laughs> this is where we say goodbye. Brent, thank you very much for coming on and enlightening us. I, I really want you to know that I think that was the best explanation of code access security I've heard in five minutes in my entire career. So, uh, thank you. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me on, on the show. Absolutely. Looking forward to the next time. All right. Good night. Well, Life is hard. Pay my taxes.